0: Well, um, good morning, church family. Uh, I was supposed to ask you uh, before you went back to your seats uh, if you would stand and and read this passage with me. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Would you you join me in reading this passage? It's real short. It's about four verses. Uh, It's going to be on the screen, but also, of course, in your Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 22. And please remember that our first verse today is also the one that we ended on uh, last week. But Jews came from Antioch and Iaconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Next. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, please help each one of us to be ready to receive whatever you have for us this morning. It's easy sometimes to to come and to sit and... uh, and to soak, but we don't always apply. And I pray, God, that we will take these words, Father, this morning and apply them to our lives in such a way that it brings honor and glory to you and it helps us to know who you are a little better. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, yes, yeah, this, this is kind of a shocking story, um, but before we go back over this passage, a verse at a time, um, do y'all remember the context of what we just read? because I know it's been like, you know, seven days since we looked at this last. Um, these, these two apostles, Paul and Barnabas, they'd been traveling from city to city. They'd been preaching the gospel about Jesus, about how he is the Christ, the son of the living God, how he died on the cross to purchase forgiveness for sins, and how he rose from the dead. And so far, they'd been kicked out of one city because the Jewish leaders there kept talking smack about him, and then they were trying to keep others from listening to them. You may remember that was Pisidia Antioch. Uh, the next main place was Iconium, and they stayed there for a while, and they built up the church, and then they left because there were both Jews and t- Gentiles there that were plotting to kill them, okay? So, they show up then in Lyconia, where the Holy Spirit gave Paul the ability to heal a crippled man who had never walked before, okay? And so, verse 19 takes place right after the Lyconians. They all, they all tried to, like, offer sacrifices and, uh, and, and garlands, to to Paul and Barnabas, because they thought they were gods. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but now normally drawing a huge crowd is a great opportunity to share the gospel again, Um, and I'm sure that that was what Paul and Barnabas had planned to do, but instead we read, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, those last two cities that they'd been in, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. They were supposing that he was dead. Right? Wow. <laughs> I mean, so, there's so many questions here. Okay, For starters, how insane is it that these people are ready to fall down and worship the apostles one moment and soon after that they're ready to execute them? It's pretty crazy. You know, it, we discussed the fickle nature of the human heart last week, but even so, it's kind of surprising. Now, secondly, what in the world... Did these, these Jews that came from these other cities, what do they say to change the people's minds so suddenly? Don't know. It says they persuaded them. Well, and third, why just Paul? I mean, was Barnabas able to run faster? Like, I, I really don't, I don't understand exactly why, you know. And, and was Paul thinking maybe this was it at this point? I mean, maybe he was thinking, hey, I, I'm ready to meet Jesus. Let's do this. I, I, don't, I don't know. Whatever the case may be, what is stoning? You've probably heard about it before. You've seen you know, the Sunday school. If you ever grew up with a flannel board, you, know, you may have had little flannel board stones that get put on Paul. Um, it's a method of execution by which a, a, a big crowd of people picks up rocks that are big enough to kill you with, and then every single one of them hurls that rock at or onto your person um, thereby turning you into a busted pile of mush basically and this is still practiced in many Middle Eastern countries even today for certain for certain laws that are broken okay and and, and it's seriously brutal um, so to sum up this crowd went from trying to worship Paul and Barnabas to trying to kill them why I just I want to take a guess. You know, what on earth was their motivation? I want you to just, just think about that for just a second. You think that maybe they thought that it was possible that they had been played somehow? I mean, I want you to just, just think from their perspective. You know, after having these emotions running so high, right, that thinking that they had just met Zeus and Hermes, and then when, when the Jews showed up, you know, uh, this is around the time that you know, the apostles just completely knocked down this idea that they ought to be worshipped. Maybe they felt let down. And so these guys show up and they're saying that Paul and Barnabas are liars and deceivers. Maybe the crowd, you know, suddenly felt like they had justification to, to punish them, you know, for fooling them. Even though, honestly, they were the ones fooling themselves. I, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's, it, it's rational. I'm saying it's human nature. Okay? When we feel emotionally manipulated, it makes us angry, right? We've probably all experienced this at some point. We we question the motives of the person that we believe made us feel bad. Even if it's completely unfounded. Our flesh wants to suspect that there was malicious intent by that person. Now, we're Christians. Imagine if we had those tendencies without the tempering influence of the Holy Spirit. Just think about that for a second. In our daily lives, we consistently interact with people who do not have the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be suspicious of everything that we say and do as Christians. So first point, by some people, you can expect to be suspected. Your heart, your motivation, and your intentions will be assumed to be in the wrong place. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, A friend sent me some screenshots. Uh, They had a conversation with someone online who accused her of hatred, bigotry, and lying because she chooses not to use the preferred pronouns of a person with gender dysphoria. And I want to ask you this question, okay? Is it loving to perpetuate a delusion? Of course not. Now, our 11-year-old he occasionally, and this is kind of random, he occasionally just decides to tell us that he is a duck. Or a potato. Okay? Those, those two things. Clearly, he really does know that he is a human being. But if he really thought that he was one of those other options, would I be a good parent to let him keep thinking that? Or, or should I leave him at the pond? You know, or wrap him in tinfoil and stick him in the oven? You know, you know, Clearly... Listen, obviously not. I I personally, I do not believe that I know a single Christian who hates trans people. I don't think anyone in this room does. Or, for that matter, who hates, I don't know any Christians that I believe hate gay people. Or hate people that are in heterosexual sin. Or who hate addicts. Or who hate compulsive liars. Or who hate verbally abusive people or who hate racists or who hate Buddhists. Do you see where I'm going with this? We can agree with God that something is wrong and something that we can hate sin and not hate the person. Otherwise, we would all hate ourselves because guess what? That's right. That's right. And yet, if we tell people that God has an alternate and better plan for their lives than the one that they might currently be mired in. It makes them suspicious of our motives and our intent. So here's what I'm saying. Church, get used to it. It's not going to stop. It's going to be an ever increasingly common theme for believers to experience as this world gets more and more depraved and less and less connected to reality. We talked about truth this morning. How God is truth in Sunday school. And what is truth? That which is It's the best, shortest answer you could ask for. And here's a slightly longer one. (laughs) That which corresponds with reality. That's what truth is. Okay? Anyway, I think the direction of this crowd continues to give us an idea of what we can expect as Christians. Not just to be suspected, but rejected as well by those who hate Christ. Now, of course, this, this includes those who are overtly hostile to the faith. But honestly, I don't think that people that are overtly hostile to Christianity are the biggest problem with the church right now in America. In fact, uh, you know what, if if what I said in that last point, if that didn't sit very well with you, you might really struggle with this one too, but please don't tune out. There will even be some self-professing Christians who will reject you, okay, because they've rejected the true teachings of Jesus. By the way, I may have mentioned this, but the person who was was accusing my friend of hatred and bigotry and lying, that person was claiming to be a Christian. Here's the thing. They reject the true teachings of Jesus, and they love an idolatrous view of God and Christ. It's from their own warped minds instead of who Jesus revealed God to be. The Bible teaches us pretty clearly there have always been... We'll put this in big, fat air quotes: religious people who hate Christ. They may not say that. Honestly, they may not even know that. But Jesus says, "Those who love Him will keep His commandments." John fourteen fifteen. He says, "It won't be those Matthew seven who call Him Lord, Lord that are going to enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of His Father who is in heaven." And there are some that may put on a really good show of being Christian, but I'm reminded of the Pharisees coming up to Jesus and flattering him. You remember this? In hopes of catching him in a trap with his own words. You remember this? Come to Jesus, teacher, we know you teach the way that's right. <laughs> you know, And they're trying to get him to, to somehow uh, incriminate himself. Or even more painfully. Think of Judas. I mean, he was, he was part of the inner circle. And all along, all along, he was a devil according to Christ himself. Either way, whether from outside the church or even within the confines of what we see as the church, I'm going to call it the visible church. Expect to be rejected. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, and after they'd finished the Passover supper, Judas had already left after Jesus washed his feet, I guess. Um, or maybe it was right before that, but Judas had already left. Jesus is preparing his disciples, okay? He's preparing them for what's going to come next. And he knew that what what was about to happen was going to be really hard for them to deal with. And so, because they didn't understand, right? They didn't understand he was going to the cross. Like, they, they still didn't get it, okay? He wanted them to know that. He wanted them to understand that the way that he was about to be treated and had been treated is the same way that they should expect to be treated. They're going to have to deal with this. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things, he says, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now he said this in the context of being hated by the world because he didn't belong to the world. But the idea of persecution certainly carries rejection even further. Because if we continue to speak and try to live truth, and they can't shout us down, they can't just ignore us, it's not enough to be rejected. On top of being suspected and rejected, we should expect to be subjected to abuse for our faith. Like Jesus said, if they did it to him, they'll do it to his followers. Now Christ he, he had most of his own nation turn against him despite the fact that that he never did anything wrong. They they crucified him. And Paul, in similar fashion, was stoned by a mob because of his own obedience to Christ. How many of us here relish the prospect of suffering for Jesus? Most of us don't. It's probably not something we look forward to, right? I mean, even though, even though it's not likely that we'll be physically murdered for our faith anytime soon, many of us are already experiencing social stress, job issues, uh, we're enduring slander. Several have lost relationships with friends and family because of the faith. I doubt that most of us are just champing at the bit, you know, to, to be persecuted. That's not really how we're wired. And yet we should expect it to some degree. We, we should expect to be subjected to abuse in order that we can be mentally prepared for it when it comes. There's a solid precedent for this in Scripture. You remember Peter, who was later crucified upside down for Jesus, he wrote these words in his first letter to the churches. He said, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That is profound. He's saying that we should arm ourselves with the way that Christ thought, so that we'd be able to suffer well. Then by choosing to suffer for Christ over choosing sin, we're showing that we truly belong to Christ. Because just a few, a few verses down, Peter continues, beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, he says. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's pretty awesome. It's similar to Jesus' statement that we ought to rejoice and leap for joy when we suffer for his name's sake. Again, it's catch this suffering for Christ is physical evidence that we really are his children. So, if we really are his children, we should expect to be subjected to persecution for his sake. Anyway, let's get back to our story. So this mob, this, uh, this, mob this, this big crowd, they thought that they had stoned Paul to death, Okay, but despite the vicious pounding that he took and even being dragged out of the city, then he woke up. <laughs> and Luke writes, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Okay, there are some, there's some who say that instead of being stoned to death, he was really just rocked to sleep. Um, there, there are others who believe he was actually killed, and then he was raised to life again miraculously, like Jesus. Uh, some people think this experience was when Paul got to see a vision of the third heaven. It's a reference that he makes in 2 Corinthians, but the timeline doesn't fit that explanation. Um, frankly, I don't, I don't know. I don't know which it is. Was he dead? Was he just unconscious? Again, I don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you this. And, and if anybody's ever worked out with me, you know this. Okay, If I strain a muscle during a workout, I'm going to be sore for days and you're going to hear me complain about it. Okay, <laughs> That's just a little thing, right? Okay, This guy was beat to a pulp by people wielding rocks the size of grapefruits. And he gets up, walks back into the city where they just tried to kill him, and then travels the very next day. The very next day. I mean, we all know Paul was pretty tough, but that seems like more than tough to me. I mean, that, not even a day to recover. I think either God worked a miraculous healing or else those, those rock throwers need to go back to PE and learn how to chuck a rock. You know, or rock throw, what do we call them, stoners? <laughs> how many rocks would a stoner rock if a stoner, never mind. Anyway, um, what do we pick up from this? We've seen a lot about what we can expect from some people, but what about what 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 do we expect from God? What can we expect from the Lord? I think this verse reminds us that from the Lord you can expect to be protected both now and forever. You can expect to be protected. You may note there's an asterisk up there next to now. And that's because God's protection in the now is only temporary. Now now listen, it's possible. It's possible that he might give you a Psalm 91 experience. You know what I'm talking about? where you make it through basically every current trial that you're going through completely unscathed. It, it's, it happens occasionally. But we've got to be careful with that. We've got to be careful assuming that. I remember uh, when COVID had first hit, a lot of people were quoting Psalm 91 and saying, "Oh, we got nothing to fear, Psalm 91." And I'm not, I'm not making fun of anybody that did that. I just want to point out, while they are quoting a very powerful psalm, that's also the same psalm that Satan quoted to Jesus when he was trying to tempt him. So be careful with that, okay? Take things in context. Uh, I had a story, but I'm not going to tell it this time. Um, it's not always how it goes to have a Psalm 91 experience. Sometimes we try to do the right thing and stand up for the Lord, but we're not as protected as we like, right? You know, we we undergo a a pretty major letdown or even a serious stomping, you know, and it can lead us back to wondering, hey, God, do you really have my back? Well, here's the thing. His protection in this life doesn't guarantee health. It doesn't guarantee prosperity. It doesn't guarantee a lack of pain, but it does guarantee that we will never have to face it alone. And we can always know that God will not let us die until He has accomplished His will in our life in this place. We can know this. What's really awesome about His protection is that His main purpose in whatever protection we receive in this life is to bring us safely home for good. You know, once we're in his kingdom, our forever is secure. And upon taking leave of this broken place, we can know that that peace and rest and joy are going to belong to us for all eternity because of what Jesus did. So expect to be protected. And based on Paul's experience in this text, expect to be directed in your life in how best to follow his will. It certainly seems as though uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, they'd been trusting in the Holy Spirit to show them where to go next. And that actually becomes a lot more clear later in the book of Acts. We even see that, that God leads them through dreams and things like that. Um, but for now, the, let, let's take notice that the power of the Holy Spirit became evident in every place they went because they were making disciples. I mean, we see that they already had some in Lyconia. This is very quick. But it, it says the disciples right gathered around Paul and, and if it was just Barnabas, it wouldn't have been much of a gathering, you know. But, but apparently they were led, the apostles were led to leave and to go to Derby the very next day rather than taking any time to recuperate. And then Luke writes, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, again, they're obviously trusting the Spirit of God, they're walking in His will based on the fruit, they returned to Lystra, where Paul got stoned, and to Iconium, And to Antioch, you know, where respectively their lives are threatened and they were heavily opposed. You know, why go back? Why would they go back? Obviously, they were led by the Lord. If people were just following their own will, they're not going to go back to a place where somebody just tried to kill them. They're following the Lord's guidance. Anyway, they return to those cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. We're going to pause right there because there's some really relevant stuff here that I think we need to take to heart, okay? Notice that in all three of these places where Paul and Barnabas, had, had, they'd gone through, they came back through, there were disciples of Jesus Christ in those cities. And what that means is their preaching worked. Despite this, you know, the, the persecution, the hassles, the, the I mean, serious abuse that they had to deal with, the preaching worked. And so if you, really, if you really think about it, these disciples, at one point in their recent history, had been pagans. But they had repented at the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. Before that, they were on the path to hell. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Okay, They were unsaved. And now they were saved by grace through faith. Because of Jesus Christ. You know, their eternal destination had shifted from a lake of fire to streets of gold. That's kind of a big deal. From the wrath of God as judge to the eternal presence and glory of God as Father. That's a big shift. And as hard as it was being persecuted, I'll bet the apostles had no problem accepting that it was worth it to see these people change from Faithlessness to faith in Christ. We put such an emphasis on the temporal, on the the temporary, the here and now. We don't want to go through even a little bit of discomfort. But there are people going to hell, folks, that need to hear the gospel. They may not like us. They may not respond the way we hope they will. We may be suspected, rejected, you know, subjected to abuse. All those things may happen. But the Lord uses our mouths to save people for eternity. We are the tool. We're not the means. That's the blood of Christ. But we're the tool. We're the instrument. Just keep that in mind. Anyway, I want you to notice what, happened, what happens here is, as, as they're interacting with the other believers, they were strengthening and encouraging them to keep following Jesus. Those two words, literally, they were giving them strength and courage, right? I mean, how is that possible? It's just like how in the book of Philippians, you got Paul. Remember, he says his being in prison actually emboldened other Christians. You know, when we, see, when we see someone going through a rough time, okay, we see someone, uh, or, or if we see someone that is spiritually flourishing after going through a rough time, it gives us hope, doesn't it? Hope for our own situation. It reminds us God really is good, that he really does take care of us. I, th- I think this is part of the reason that it's so necessary to stay involved in the life of the church. And by that, I'm referring to the assembly of God's people. And friends, if you are one of the elect, and and if you believe on Jesus, that's you, okay, then expect to be connected in the body of Christ. This is one of those things, uh, it's non-negotiable, okay? I mean, whether, whether you want it to be or not, whether you realize it or not, even if you're not physically experiencing it at this point in time, you are connected to every other believer in Jesus Christ on this whole planet, and those who have ever been on it, and those who ever will be on it. That's a lot of brothers and sisters. It's a big family. This, this is a wonderful work of God in us and among us. You know, we're, we're adopted into a family. And when that happens, when we're adopted or when we're grafted into the, into the wild olive tree, the Lord has made us his own And as such, we are a part of a unified, worldwide body of Christ that consists of every born-again believer. I mean, if you think about it, we we quite literally have some family in pretty much every part of the globe. And that's not just words either. I mean, you know, the same Holy Spirit indwells a believer in, in McKinney, Texas, that lives anywhere else, right? I mean... United States, Mexico, Canada, Panama, Jamaica, Peru. You know, I mean, it's it, 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 the whole world. The whole world. We're all connected. And you'll know it when you strike up a conversation with another person that your spirit recognizes. Have, have you experienced this? You run into somebody in some random place and you start talking to them and you know that they're a Christian and they, they know you're a Christian and it's just immediately you're like, you are my brother. Yeah. What's that? Cool, yeah. You know, even if you don't speak the same language, just listen to them worship the Lord. If you've ever been to a church service where people don't speak English, because you know what you call a person that speaks only one language? American, right? Have have you heard that? Because it's pretty true. You go almost anywhere else in the world, people speak multiple languages. But if you go and you listen to a worship service with some people, you may not know their language, but you know they're worshiping the Lord, you feel a connection. I've watched Joyson lead worship service in, in uh, what is their language? togulu. Uh, to, to I can't pronounce it right probably, but I don't, I don't know what they're saying, but I kind of get, get the gist <laughs> because my spirit recognizes it. Anyway, if you've been a Christian a long time, hopefully, hopefully you're walking faithfully with the Lord and you're providing a testimony for younger believers that gives them strength, that gives them courage just like the witness of Paul and Barnabas did. That's part of what it means to be connected in the body of Christ. It's not just about fellowship, right? It's not just about corporate worship either. It it is about living for one another. In a sense, laying our lives down for one another and being an example for each other to look to, which kind of leads us into the next thought. Um, While we we, we can expect to be connected to other believers, we should continually also... Hopefully, anyway, expect to be respected by those who watch our behavior, by those who observe our lives closely. And despite that last point, I'm not just talking about those within the church. I want you to listen. I think we tend to forget this, okay? If we suffer for Christ, but we suffer well, meaning without compromise, meaning praising God rather than blaming Him, with no hostility toward anyone else, uh, with a minimum of complaining, that's a one I struggle with, all right? If we can do all that, even non-believers notice. Even non-believers see that there's something different. In fact, even those, even those who may be persecuting us, they might find that they have a grudging respect despite themselves because we refuse to deny our Savior. We refuse to turn our back on what is right and because we refuse to hate our enemies. Both First Peter 3 and Romans 12 remind us that we actually make it harder on our enemies when we love them. And we don't give them any reason to treat us the way that they do. It makes it, makes it hard on them. Their hearts are either going to grow harder or they're going to, and if they do that, it's going to just heap more judgment on themselves, or their hearts are going to be drawn, right? The Lord will draw them to himself through our willingness to suffer abuse for Christ's sake. It really is true. This is true. The way we respond to pain makes a difference for those who witness it. All right, uh, let's take a look at the last part here, and I'm going to back up to about the middle of the sentence. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That makes me stop and think. Through many tribulations. You know, while encouraging the disciples to continue in the faith, they flat out said, through many tribulations. We must in the kingdom of God. You know, In the context, Paul and Barnabas, they're referring to the kingdom of God in the ultimate sense, upon leaving this life for the next. We're going to have to suffer, in other words, before we see heaven. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're earning our salvation somehow? Absolutely not. Okay, good. I'm glad you know that. God's gift to us, the, the forgiveness of sins, comes entirely through Christ, 100%, completely, It's all through Jesus. But the reality of our walk is such that that we will experience difficulty for Jesus' sake if we truly belong to him. We will. Now, for those who are blessed to live in a truly tolerant society, suffering might be be due to what's referred to as the mortification of your flesh. In other words, uh, intentionally killing off the, the sinful desires, the selfish desires that live inside us in order to, to better fulfill the will of God. And so we're, we're still undergoing a persecution, but it's not necessarily from the government or from others. For those in hostile cultures, which we're kind of in transition to right now, uh, there may be suffering of a more visible kind. But again, we should be prepared for it. We need to get our minds ready what was it that we said? What was it? I, th- I think it was you, Donna, that we had the conversation a while back, and we said, if you don't steal your mind, the devil steals your mind, right? Prepare yourself, guys. Get ready. Be ready for when it comes. If we went back through this whole sermon, I mean, the preparing your mind, that's a pretty consistent theme. We should be ready to experience all of this because Jesus did it first. And what are we supposed to do? Follow him. We're supposed to follow Jesus. Let me ask you something, friends. Do you know why Jesus suffered? We know his death was in our place, right? We know his blood was shed for the forgiveness of Of So that we might have the forgiveness of sins. But why did he have to go through such agonizing pain? I mean, not just the the flogging and the crucifixion and being betrayed by, by friends and spat on, beaten, but even forsaken by his father in the moment that he became sin. Why? Why couldn't he just have died? We got the answer in the Bible. It's in Hebrews 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This, This is the atonement he's talking about, right? But the why is in the next verse. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, okay, should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. What? Who is the founder of our salvation? Right? Jesus? Why did, why did something have to happen to make him perfect. I mean, he was sinless, right? You know, that's an interesting question. Jesus was without sin. He didn't commit sin, nor did he leave anything undone that would have been a sin to omit. Okay? He did nothing wrong. He did everything right. But there was still one thing that needed to happen for him to be perfected. You see, the word perfected in Greek is different from how we use it in English. We, We usually think of perfect as without flaw, right? Um, which Jesus was, morally speaking, of course. But in Greek, it means finished. It means complete. completed To have grown to one's absolute fullest potential. And so in order to understand the full gamut of human experience and to practice perfect obedience, Jesus himself had to suffer. Do you think we deserve any less? Friends, expect to be perfected as a process, as a progression over time through trials and hardships. God is sanctifying us, making us holy. And of course, we are still living with that tension, right, between the the Holy Spirit and our flesh. And we're only going to be sinless upon the death of this body. Because the sin in this body will then be be no longer a part of us. But every day, the Lord will be moving us slowly in the direction of His end goal for us, which is to be like Christ. One of my favorite passages uh, is James 1, 2 through 4, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. That's the point of all this trouble, of all this struggle that we have in this life. It's to make us more like Jesus. Let's welcome it. Let's welcome suffering. Let's welcome it. It's a reminder of whose we are. So if you, were, if you were elected, expect to be affected by God's work in you. And some of that work involves being purified by fire. But friends, if you're in the fire, don't feel dejected. Okay? It's part of, of how God reminds his children that we're going to be resurrected. It's going to happen. You know that, right? Right? It says in Scripture, he disciplines his sons that he loves. So welcome it. Welcome the purification process. Expect that that, that he is going to finish the work that he began in you because his word promises that he is faithful to complete it. I don't know about you guys, but there's there's something unnatural, I should probably say supernatural, about preparing ourselves to be thankful for suffering. It's a reminder that this world is not our ultimate home. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we look forward to when we will be with him forever. And until, until then, you know, you know what? Now we know what to expect. It's right here in Acts chapter 14. But listen, if you're not sure whether you're in Christ, um, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And if you do, then then if your answer is yes, then then ask yourself this. Have I chosen Christ over my sin? Have I repented? Have I taken the steps of faith to confess my allegiance to Christ and be baptized by immersion? Am I trying to walk faithfully with Him? If you answer honestly, and the answer to any of those questions is no, then do it. Commit. Commit. Repent and believe, then do what Jesus said. And listen, if you're a person who has said yes to all those things, and you're doing it imperfectly, then guess what? You're in good company. Today, I I want you to realize we're leaving these last few minutes up to you, okay? Um, Or at least to what the Lord chooses to do in you. It's your chance to respond however the Holy Spirit may be leading you. If it's simply to receive prayer or if you need someone to talk to, that's fine. I'm going to be standing up here um, ready to to receive anybody that wants to come up. Um, You know, if if we get Dave and Mary, if you guys want to come up um, so that we can. He's over here. Don't worry. Um, What we want to do, we we want you to know there are people up here to minister to you if there's anything that you need, okay? Um, And if you'd like to be a member, too, this is your opportunity. But listen, just don't say no to the Lord today.